ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. has been a tumultuous year for many as we come out of a worldwide pandemic and the seismic social and economic repercussions that are still reverberating. We thought we'd end this year's Truth Serum podcast series with a Christmas special and examine this centuries-old message of hope. We sure could use some hope and good news as we approach 2022. The Christmas and holiday season mean many things to many people. To some, it's a time to share presents and be with family and friends. To others, it's a reminder that there is hope for mankind. And still to others, it means nothing at all. The underlying message of Christmas is that we're not alone, that there is a God who cares. In this episode, I'll be interviewing internationally acclaimed and New York Times best-selling author, Eric Metaxas. Eric also hosts a nationally syndicated talk show. I interview Eric about his most recent book, Is Atheism Dead? We discuss whether God was ever really dead, as proclaimed by Time Magazine in 1969, and whether recent scientific, archaeological, and biblical evidence points conclusively to a creator, and who that creator just might be. So whether you believe in the Savior, Santa Claus, or no one at all, you'll find this episode to be interesting and worthwhile. Then join me as I hit the streets in Northern California, and I ask both believers and non-believers alike, if they believe in an afterlife, and what they plan on doing if they in fact get to heaven. I'm going to tell Eric, I'm going to tell my listeners a little bit about you, and then uh, I'm going to do a little brief summary of your book and then ask us some questions. Here we go. Okay. Eric Metaxas, you're a nationally known and acclaimed writer with numerous best-selling books. You've reached number one on the New York Times best-selling list. You've written a book on you've written books on a variety of subjects, including historical review of the lives of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther, and William Wilberforce. You examine the roots and legacy of the U.S. Constitution in a book called If You Can Keep It. And you've examined the supernatural in a book called Miracles, what they are, why they happen, and how they can change your life. You also author children's stories, and you currently host the nationally syndicated radio show called The Eric Metaxas Show. Heard on over 300 outlets nationwide. Welcome to Truth Serum, Eric Metaxas. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. You just released a fascinating new book called Is Atheism Dead? And if I, if I give me a little bit of liberty, I'll give a brief summary of the book yeah. as I see it, and I'll ask you some questions. Absolutely. All right, here we go. You start with what you deem a low point in the culture in 1966 when Time Magazine published its cover article called Is God Dead? and you express the secular consensus of the time. You then assert that the cultural tide has now changed, and you cite five things that have arisen since Time published its article that changes everything that you think uh, matters on the debate of whether God exists. And the five points you raised are discovery and proof of the Big Bang, evidence of fine-tuning in the universe, cellular nanobiology evidencing complex cellular programming, 
archaeological discoveries supporting biblical narratives, and finally, an examination of atheism and that many of its most strident adherents recanted and they believed God when they died. So my first question to you is, what motivated you to take on a subject as big as atheism and the existence of God? Well, uh, it's funny. It's one of these things, you know, as a writer, I write on so many different subjects. You mentioned I've written three biographies. Um, I have written, uh, you know, about America. I I like, uh, I'm interested in many things. I've always been eclectic, but um, it was right at the beginning of COVID. And I realized the two pieces of information had come to me that almost nobody knows about. And it's, it struck me as providential, really, because I thought, who am I to bump into these people and get this amazing information? One uh, had to do with uh, the discovery of biblical Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, 1700 BC, one of you know, the first couple of pages of the Bible, something that I don't think anybody ever dreamt could be corroborated as history. Uh, I met a man in Albuquerque who, who uh, spent years on this, and I was skeptical at first, but uh, with some uh, time, I was able to realize, no, this is real. He has discovered something from the mythical first few pages of the Bible. There's no question about it. I was astounded. But whenever I'm astounded by something, I'm astounded a second time when I realize no one knows about this. I, I know that it's true. I've determined that it's true. And then I realize no one knows about it. If you ask people, they'd be like, no, no, I never read never anything about that. Uh, I met another guy, uh, one of the top scientists on planet Earth. Uh, his name is James Tour. Uh, he holds a number of uh, uh, positions uh, at uh, Rice University, just super genius uh, nanoscientist. And he works on the level of creating molecules in the lab and just doing stunning things. I mean, he's, he's got something like 700, uh, uh, 600 patents and 700 uh, peer-reviewed articles. I mean, just nuts. I was in a conversation with him and he talked to me about something completely different. He said, the idea that a lot of us grew up with maybe in junior high school or high school, there was, it was something on the test about how life began 4 billion years ago. There was a, an experiment, the Miller-Urey experiment and how some grad students ran electricity through something that they thought approximated what would have been on the surface of the earth 4 billion years ago. And Shazam, they got some amino acids and they thought we're off to the races uh, before you know it, we'll figure out the next step, and the next step, and the next step, and we'll prove that life can emerge from non-life. And he said, it's been seven decades. If anybody knows how this stuff works, I do. You can't fool me. And I'm here to tell you, they have not moved the ball forward a millimeter. In fact, they're fudging it. They have literally no idea how life began. But for seven decades, science has been claiming this. So I met these two men, and I thought, you know what? No one has heard of either of these things. There's no headlines. There's no nothing. I'm in New York, by the way, if you hear sirens. So I got to tell you, I was so amazed by what I learned from them as I dug into it. But then I was further amazed that no one knew about this. All the people of faith that I know, serious intellectuals, they never heard of this. And I thought, you know what? These are just two of the big recent examples but frankly, I know a lot of stuff like this. I've looked into it and I thought most people don't know this. And they bought the narrative that kind of began in the middle of the culture in 1966. Is God dead? Well, probably science is pushing God out of the picture. The culture has become increasingly secular. And I thought it's almost odd that 
Since 1966, the information, particularly from science, has been pointing in exactly the opposite direction. The more we learn from science, the more we know uh, what we don't know and what we can't know, and the more it points to God, particularly the fine-tuned universe. And it's gotten so overwhelming, uh, Spencer, that I just, I got to a point, I said, I have to write about this in a book because people don't realize because the mainstream media sort of doesn't cover this. They, they figure the question was answered. You know, uh, we've, we've all figured out the intelligent people know science is pushing faith out. And I'm here to tell you, literally the opposite is true. Science is pointing to God in ways that are so dramatic that I think it's, it's, uh, it's upsetting a lot of people who, who, who uh, are stuck on this sort of atheist philosophy. Uh, let's dig it. Let's dig that's in. Really just what, that's what led to my I saying I had to write the book. So of course there's a lot more, but that, it was it was that weird experience of meeting those two people and kind of realizing no one knows this. Good. Let's dig in a little bit because I've only got say 30 minutes. I want uh, listeners to get a little bit of an idea. Uh, out of the five factors that you cited that most influenced you in this book, what's the one that impacted you the most? Well. The overwhelming one uh, is one that some people know about, not many, but it's called the fine-tuned universe. When Christopher Hitchens, the new atheist, was asked, uh, what is the toughest argument from the God side? In a very rare moment of candor, because he could be very nasty, he wouldn't give an inch. He said, oh, without any question, the fine-tuned argument. And the fine-tuned argument is simply that the better science gets, the more science we have, the more science is able to see things that it couldn't see 50 years ago, and notice that if almost anything, anywhere you look, if, if it were slightly different in this direction or this direction, there would be no life. The size of the earth is the most obvious example. Um, when I was growing up, I never heard that it mattered that the, that the earth is the size that it is. Who cares? What's the difference? You know, I've watched Star Trek. Life can emerge anywhere. Right. Well, science now knows what they didn't know, that we have a magnetosphere and that if the earth were ever so slightly smaller, like the size of Mars, no life. The atmosphere will just float away uh, into, into outer space, just like it did on, on Mars. Uh, if the Earth were slightly bigger, the gravity would be more powerful, more mass, more gravity, and it would pull down uh, certain poisonous gases and other things. It'd be impossible to have life. But that's just literally one example of fine-tuning. The examples of fine-tuning have piled up and up and up over the decades, and nobody seems to have ever said this is a headline. It's just been piling up like snow overnight and you wake up in the morning and you're like, hey, what, what happened? I can't open the front door. There's a drift. The evidence from fine tuning is so overwhelming. It's almost frightening, actually, that science is able to look at the nano level, at the macro level, at when the Big Bang began 13.8 billion years ago. Scientists know today, they know for sure that one millionth of a second after the Big Bang, think of this, this is what scientists say. This is not, you know, people of faith. Scientists say that one millionth of a second after the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, the four fundamental forces of physics, gravitational, electromagnetic, weak nuclear, strong nuclear, those four forces were set in stone exactly where they are today. And if any of those four forces were any different, I mean, by 0.0001, the universe would not exist. This is what physicists are saying, astrophysicists. Amazing. No matter where you look, you get this kind of information. And it gets to the point where you say, this is headline news, but no one seems to know. So I said, I, I got to write about it. All right, let me ask you, Plato once said, the worst of all deceptions is self-deception. And in your book, you challenge the reader by saying, 
Although I might not be able to convince the reader of specific details of the Bible, I can certainly hope and even expect to convince any rational person that atheism is no longer an option for those willing to be regarded as intellectually honest. So my question is, do you think that most people who don't believe in God are that way because they deliberately ignore the evidence or because they haven't heard the evidence? Listen, I think all human beings, myself included, uh, often don't make decisions or hold views based on what's rational. Uh, we're emotional. Somebody hurt us uh, in church when we were 13 and we never went back. Everybody has different reasons for why they believe what they believe. And I simply believe that if you want to say today, I'm an agnostic, uh, the, the Christian faith or the Bible, I got a lot of questions, whatever, I would say, good for you. Let's have a conversation. But I really believe, based on the evidence in this book, and of course, there's way more evidence, I'm, but I'm just talking about the minimal level that I present in this book. I don't think you anymore can say atheism is tenable intellectually. You could have 50 years ago when Time Magazine published the article that said, is God dead? You can understand why people believe that. But the evidence, particularly in the fine tuning area, uh, DNA coding on the simplest cell, the, the idea that, that, that a bacterium could just emerge from non-life to life, when you realize how complex this, the most simple life is, that it needs incredible coding, DNA coding, you know that there's no way that that just happened unless you're so horrified by the idea of God that you just reject it and say, I don't care. I'm going to go with the materialistic view. But I, so I think everybody, Christians, you know, I'm a Christian, but I think Christians, non-Christians, everybody thinks in a sloppy way sometimes, but every now and again, we owe it to ourselves to say, wait a minute, is what I believe true? What does the evidence say? I don't want to believe it just because my parents believed it or because it works for me. I, I want to know, am I basing my, my, uh, you know, it would be no different than science. I mean, do you want to know if one plus one, one equals two? Do you care if the bridges fall down when you, when you build them? There are certain things that we can know and we should know. And I think we've arrived at that point where science is so sophisticated that it's an open and shut case in terms of whether there is a creator who created this amazing universe and this earth and the life on earth. All right, good. Let me, let me throw a challenge at you. I'll be, uh, uh, I don't want to be the devil's advocate, but here I go. Uh, many atheists will justify their own belief by saying, how could a good God allow all this suffering to take place on this planet? What would you say to somebody like that? I would say, no kidding. That is a great question. And guess what? I have that question. The people of the most serious faith also have that question. Um, I think you can know something and still have questions. Um, I know that, you know, when I get into uh, my car, I turn the key, I, I shift, I go. I don't have any question about that. But if somebody says to me, hey, hey, how can you how can you even get in the car? Do you know how a carburetor works? Would you do you even know anything about that? Do you know about the piston rods? Do you know about the you you don't know anything about that, and you're just assuming that you got a lot of questions. I think at some point you have to say yes, I have questions, but I know what I need to know, and I can learn the other stuff later. And I think the evidence for God is so overwhelming in so many ways, not just the ones I've shared with you, that even though I personally have the same question. When I see injustice, when I see suffering, it's deeply upsetting to me. It's challenging to me. But it's kind of like saying to somebody, listen, there's a lot of holes in the science. Why do you believe in science? You'd say, well, because on balance, science works, even though we still, we've made mistakes, we've screwed up, whatever. You don't throw away science because 
some scientists have done corrupt things and have lied or or anything like that. So I, I, I welcome honest questions from people. And that is like one of the questions I have talked about that at other times, but it's a, it's a deep, good question with no easy answer. That's true. No easy answer. Um, you're a Christian. What's the difference between someone who's not an atheist and believes in God and a Christian? Uh, someone who's not an atheist, but believes in God and a Christian. Well, um, I guess it depends on what kind of God someone believes in. I mean, the biblical God, um, you know, there are a lot of people who say, I believe in some kind of God, but they, they believe in an energy force or it's kind of a new age God. So y- you have a huge variety of faiths out there. And there are many people, of course, who call themselves Christians who hold views that I would say, that's wrong. You can't be a Christian and believe that. That's crazy. So, but I mean, at the core of the Christian faith is the idea that God uh, is a person. He's not an energy force. And he created the universe uh, and uh, we, we fell from grace, that somehow we're broken, we're, we're, we're hurting. Uh, and he came, he prepared a people, he prepared the Jewish people uh, to worship him so that out of them, historically, he could bring his Messiah uh, who would die on the cross. We all, we, many of us have heard this, right? And, and in a sense, atone the idea of God becoming a man and dying is itself a mind blowing idea. I mean, anybody yes. who doesn't remember why it's called the greatest story ever told you think what God who created the universe becomes a person and, and lets people kill him. And what, but ultimately if you believe that, and there are many good historical reasons to believe it, but the point is if you believe that he did that for you, that he loves you and that he came here to suffer as well as we suffer and maybe to suffer much more there's something really beautiful and moving about that. And I think a Christian who believes Jesus really is God um, has basically bought into an idea that if God would do something like that for me, if he loves me that much, then I owe it for the rest of my life to live my life loving God and loving my fellow man, not doing it to earn heaven. He he says that he, he earned heaven for me on the cross. If I believe in that, um, I, I get to be with him in eternity. And he loves me so much that he wants me to be with him in eternity so that he would die. So your response is one of gratitude. And you, you really want to help your fellow man. And you want to love God by loving his creatures who, who you know, your, your fellow man. So that, I would say, is this, the simplest response to that uh, huge question. There was a huge question. You know, circling back, I think you kind of just answered also some of the, whether you have faith in Christianity or not, that is the response of someone who might say, why would a good God allow all the suffering to exist? That's true. If he's just sitting there watching us, it's pretty bleak. But if he actually comes and participates as, as Christian doctrine holds and becomes a man, is brutalized for us and pays the penalty, just like if you did before a judge was finding you guilty, yet he takes the sentence. That's pretty powerful. I mean, it's almost inconceivable, and I can understand why some people don't get it or they sneer at it, but it it is a wild idea that the God who created the universe, I mean, one thing about this book is Atheism Dead. In doing this research and in writing it, my awe of God has gone up a a million fold. I mean, you know, we all say like, well, God is awesome. Let me tell you, the more you look into his creation, the more you study, the more you look at the science, the more it is jaw dropping that he has created 
everything around us with a level of uh, calibration and perfection, it is actually heart-stoppingly frightening on some level. And then you think, oh, and by the way, that God wants to have a relationship with me, uh, wants me to talk to him, wants to be with me forever. You know, if you really get that idea, you'll start crying because it's really beautiful. And then the idea that he would uh, die or send his son to die a horrible, horrible death to make it possible for us to be with him in eternity. Just that idea is incredibly beautiful. And uh, I, you know, I, I happen to believe it with all my heart. And I, of course, uh, if something's true along those lines, why wouldn't I want other people to know it? Of course I would. And I do. Well said. Uh, let me switch gears a little bit. You're widely known for hold, holding an event called Socrates in the Cities, uh, where atheists and believers sometimes duke it out before a live audience. Question to you is, what's the most interesting encounter you ever had on Socrates in the Cities? So- Socrates in the City is something I started 21 years ago, hard to believe. And if you go to SocratesInTheCity.com, you can see it's, it's basically conversations, uh, mostly me interviewing somebody in a beautiful club here in Manhattan where I live. And it's about the big questions. It's not always about God. We really talk about everything. I've talked to atheists. I've talked to, but it, it's it's almost never a debate. I think we only had one debate debate uh, uh, with, um, well, I, I'm forgetting now, but the point is that usually it's just a conversation about the ultimate things in life, right? Uh, are science and faith at odds? We've had a number of scientists, some of whom I quote in this book, who talk about the fact that faith is not only uh, compatible with science, but Christian faith led to the scientific revolution. Nobody knows that. Everybody forgot. We still have bought this narrative that science is at odds with faith. So I've had a bunch of scientists on. Uh, but I, as I said, I, I, I talk, um, I've talked to many people about many things. I had on Dick Cavett to talk of, you know, the greatest interviewer ever. I interviewed him about fame. What is, what is fame? Why do we long for fame. What is it inside human beings that we want to, we say we want to be famous and then what happens? And he's kind of the expert on that. Uh, I interviewed Malcolm Gladwell. I interviewed the entrepreneur, billionaire Peter Thiel. I've interviewed tons of different kinds uh, of people. Uh, Some of them I share their views, others I don't, but it's always an amicable thing. It's actually not ever a debate. Um, I, I really just enjoy, you know, conversations. I do some of that on my radio program as well, but Socrates City is uh, it's really special, and we'll be doing more of those in the next year. Uh, do you ever, uh, whether you call it a debate or discussion, do you ever have an uh, interchange with somebody and you find out that you changed their mind on something that was uh, existential or profound for them? I think it's so rare. I think people, you know, people have pride and they don't want to lose face. And so I often think that one of the reasons I write books is I think when you're alone reading a book, and I I hope my book is Atheism Dead will do this for a lot of people. When you're alone and you can think about life and you can read, it it hits you more obliquely, more gradually. I think a lot of times people have this idea that I'm going to be armed with the facts and I'm going to argue with some atheist about, and I don't see that changing people's minds. And of course, Jesus warned us. he He said, you know, don't cast your pearls before swine. In other words, if you're talking to somebody, make sure they really want to know the truth. Don't waste your time uh, arguing with somebody who's just there to win an argument. And th- then you're both just there to win an argument. But if somebody's going through pain or they're struggling, they, they may be open. But I, I often think that 
that happens in a relationship. It, it, it rarely happens in an argument. Uh, it's at least for me, uh, I, I, I can't quite remember arguing somebody uh, to, to my point of view. I think the best thing you can do is give somebody something to think about and, and don't try to win. Let them go away and think about it. And then if they come to that conclusion on their own, which they can do, as I say, reading a book, it's just more effective because then they realize it themselves. Well said. All right, let's switch gears again one more time. You believe you're going to heaven, right? Do I believe I'm going to heaven? Yes. Uh, yes, I do. What's the first thing you're going to do when you get there if you, uh, if you do? Well, this is what's so funny. Most people, when we think of heaven, we think of like, I don't know, like it's, it's going to be like, you know, six flags or something. Heaven is going to be so extraordinary. This is why I want to say to people, I, people need to know that God is real. Because if you know who he is and how much he loves you, you're going to want to go to heaven. You're not going to be afraid to die. Now, of course, naturally, all of us have some fear of the unknown. But the point is that if, if you had any clue what it is, uh, a lot of times people think it's going to go on forever and I'm going to be bored and I, I just I like my life better. Well, it's not going to go on forever. You're going outside of time, which is different than time that never ends. You go outside of time into something called eternity and you're in the presence of God, which is to say you're in the presence of the one from whom all goodness flows, all beauty, all love, all truth. You're not going to be like, man, I'm psyched to be up here. I can't wait to get, you know, my favorite ice cream. Like it's, it's, it's almost funny. I think when you're in the presence of the one who he didn't just make us, he invented us. He died for us. He loves us. I mean, even to think about what we're going to be able to do when we get there. I mean, we can joke around and, you know, I can say a lot of things. I'd love to, you know, meet, I'd like to meet uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and uh, talk to him. Uh, did, I, did I get him right in my book about him? But the fact is that we can't begin to think about how otherworldly and beautiful it's going to be. And we shouldn't be scared because as I say, God, you know, he knows us way better than we know ourselves and he knows what, what we will love and what will bless us. And so we really ought to understand we're all going to die. And uh, the only question is, where do you go when you die? And if you go into the presence of God who made you, there is literally nothing even conceivably better than that. Now, the details, we don't know. We know some, but we don't need to know the details because we know, you know, the one who kind of set up the scheme and we can trust him. So that I'm, I'm actually looking, when I'm, when I'm really logical, I'm looking forward to it. I got gotcha. you. Uh, there's a wonderful book. I, 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 you've probably read it called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. And uh, he puts a lot of feet to the fire, basically saying that a life in heaven will be much like life is here, absent all the uh, misery, sin and pain. Yeah, there'll be 20% less COVID. Yes. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> um, I think I haven't read Randy Alcorn's book, but I think that the other thing, too, is that we have this idea, you know, maybe we got it from a New Yorker cartoon that we're going to be on clouds floating around playing harps. I think that it will be a lot like where we are now, only perfect and glorious and beautiful. And, you know, again, it's hard to describe what, it, what, what would it be like to be in another dimension? We're going to be in another dimension. I mean, each of us, we're going to have bodies, you know, we're going to eat. It's not like we're going to become ghosts. Um, we can't really, let's be honest, we don't know how that's going to work. Um, but we know that when Jesus rose from the dead. He had a body. He showed the wound in his hand. Uh, he ate a piece of fish and a honeycomb. I mean, it says it there, I think, to prove to us he was real. He was not 
He, he was not a ghost. He, he's, when, he's not inviting us into some ghostly realm. And C.S. Lewis, of course, says that heaven is going to be more real. Uh, this reality, uh, C.S. Lewis calls the shadow land. Heaven is going to be more real somehow than this reality, uh, more dimensional. I mean, it's heavy stuff. Well said. Uh, you've been very patient with me. I've, I'm enjoying talking to you. What's the best way for my listeners to buy your book and to follow you? Well, I always tell people it's easiest just to go to my website. The only problem is my last name is a Greek name. You might not be able to spell it. So, but it's Eric Metaxas, M-E-T-A-X-A-S. If you can go to ericmetaxas.com, pretty much everything is there. Uh, there's a bunch of links where you can buy the book. Uh, and if you look around, there are some amazing prices on some of them. Um, I, um, I also uh, tell people sign up for my newsletter when you go to my website. Uh, you can sign up for a newsletter and all the interviews that I do, my radio show, a lot of it is crazy comedy. Some of it's political, some of it's fit. I mean, it really goes all over the map. You know, we'll email you all those video interviews, which look a little bit like this, some of them, um, and, and a number of other things, but I'm on all the social, uh, media and, uh, my, the radio show is on rumble now. And, but I'm on Instagram and on Twitter and, and all that good stuff. And I, you know, look forward to people, uh, uh, checking out some of what I've done and Socrates in the city.com, a really, a really great resource. I'm just thrilled that we finally have all those videos up. Any last message to people over the holidays after these crazy COVID times? Well, um, I, I think Christians like me call, uh, the story of, of Jesus good news because it's good news. It's the greatest news imaginable. I just think a lot of people are cynical and they think, I've got too many questions. I can't really believe it. I want to say that the idea of God coming to earth in the form of a baby who was born uh, from a teenager and anybody who's been around birth knows that it's bloody and messy. You think, what kind of a God? He doesn't come down, didn't come down on a golden cloud like an emperor. He is an emperor. He's the emperor of the universe, but he came to earth in this humble way and came to die it's beautiful. And I want to say to people, there is an, uh, uh, an, there, there are an infinity of reasons actually to believe it. You, you will always have questions, but I know the most intelligent people I know believe this and still have questions. Uh, and I think in a way, the point of the book is to say that we've been living in that world where we, we get the idea that all the intelligent people know God's probably dead or that question is passed. And I'm here to say, no, ironically, uh, if you've ever needed evidence, there's, uh, there's infinitely more evidence now from science, from archaeology, and then uh, from a few other things that I write about at the end of the book that I think an open-minded person would say, yes, I'm, uh, I'm able to believe this, and it would be the greatest thing you ever did. So I would say celebrate Christmas in that way if you're able. Great. Thank you, Eric. Again, appreciate talking to you. Appreciate the words you have to say. And I'll encourage all my listeners, check out your book, make their own decision. And hopefully it's a glorious Christmas for all. Thank you. Privileged to be with you. Thank you, Spencer. Thank you. I asked people in Northern California the following question. Christmas celebrates what's described as the birth of the Savior of mankind. Do you believe that there is a heaven and a hell when you die? And if you believe in heaven, what's one of the first things you want to do when you get there? Most people believe in heaven or hell. Many who believe they are heaven-bound simply want to give thanks to their Savior for being there. What's your name? David. David, where are you from? 
Huntington Beach. Yeah, 100%. I believe there's a real hell, real hell and a real heaven. I'm going to be there not because of the righteous things I've done, but the righteous things he did for me. First thing, I know this is probably um, what a lot of people are going to say, but I mean, I want to see Jesus first and thank him for what he did for me. Okay, what's your name? Kirsten. And where are you from? Uh, San Rafael, California. Okay. So I absolutely believe in heaven, in hell, and um, I'm going to heaven. And the reason I know this is because Jesus is my Savior and Lord. One person believed he was heading for hell, but he hoped he might avoid his ultimate arrival there. Another thought hell was a rewind of all the bad things you did. Forever. Morgan? I do. I believe in both. Um, I think I might be going to hell, but I would definitely go to heaven if I could. Um, I have a cooler's life. First thing. Why do you believe you're going to hell? Kind of dumb. Done some bad things. But, uh, yeah. Last question. Can you be forgiven? I think so. I hope so. Me too. That's the whole thing of Christmas. Amen. My name is Gabby. Gabby, where are you from? I'm from Oakland, California, slash Nevada, California. <laughs> um, I think I do believe in a heaven or a hell. I think there's a trap in hell. I think there's a bunch of rewinds of your mistakes in life in hell. Others don't believe in any afterlife. When you die, it's over. Okay, what's your first name? Gary. Don't believe in heaven, and I certainly don't believe in hell. What do you think happens when it's all over? It's You die, you die. You got one chance to live, and you better live it well. Does that give you some sense of unease that when you die, it's over? It beats, I'm sure if I can live in the fantasy of believing I'm going to go to heaven, that would make life easier, but I can't believe that. Others who believe they're heaven-bound want to find lost family members or start off with their family members where they left off on earth. What's your first name? Sean. Sean, where are you from? Uh, Nevada. Well, for my sake, I hope there's a heaven. And uh, if there is, I want to hug my grandpa. Great. Has you been gone for a while? Huh? Uh, yeah, about seven years. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. Appreciate it. You have a great day. You too. Thanks a lot. What's your name? Eleanor. I do believe. And the first thing, one of the first yeah. things I would do would be to find my mother and father. Great. Thank you. Some want to visit their savior upon entry, but if he's busy, they have other people they might want to see or things they might want to do while they wait. What's your name? Steve Smith. Okay, Steve, where are you from? San Rafael. Well, there is a heaven and a hell, and the first thing I want to do is to see Jesus. No doubt about that. If he's busy, what's number two? <laughs> if, he's if he's busy, huh? Well, I don't know. Uh, mm, you know, we're studying Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan uh, preacher, and I, I'm sort of into him now and reading his, uh, his sermon. So I think I'd, uh, I'd like to talk to him. He's number two if Jesus is busy. Yeah, right. Thank you. Okay, you're welcome. What's your name? Michael Podshadley. And Michael, where are you from? Nevada. I do believe in heaven, uh, because what's the point of, of it all if there's not heaven? But um, I would say the first thing I would do is see uh, past relatives. Great. One other question. You're a brewmaster. You're making the famous beer. It's Pod's Brewery, right? Mm -hmm. So my question is, will there be a brewery in heaven? And if so, what kind of beer are you going to drink? Um, I don't know. I think hopefully there's a brewery in heaven, but um, if, uh, if there is, then I would like a pale ale. <laughs> Very good. Thank you.
One person acknowledged that there's a steep price to be paid to get into heaven, but he believed he had to pay it by his good deeds, not by what the Savior had done. What's your name? Rogelio. Okay. Rogelio, where are you from? I'm from Mexico. Well, say hi to my ancestors that are already there. Does everybody automatically get there or is there a price to be paid to get there? There is a price. What's the price in your mind? You have to be a good person in, on earth. That's, that's the main thing. And you have to have, uh, uh, you know, you, you have to work your way to, to get there. It's not free. <laughs> Another thought we might be living in heaven or hell right now. And was not willing to accept the evidence for a creator. He thought it was just too big a leap. What's your name? My name is Jordan. Jordan, where are you from? I'm from Novato, California. Uh, I believe there's a heaven and hell, but uh, they're manifested through, through energy uh, since the beginning of time. So, for example, we could be living in heaven or hell right now and not know it. When you die, you could be in heaven or hell. Um, so... If th this is heaven right now, which I'm, I'm enjoying it, so it might be, um, I would do the things I do normally. Ride bikes, skateboard, um, love my woman, all the, all the things that are great about life. That's, to me, that's heaven. And finally, some believe that the wait would be worthwhile to get to heaven no matter what suffering was endured on the way. And others couldn't wait to walk the streets of gold. What's your name? Allie. Allie, and where are you from? Nevada. I do believe there's a heaven um, and hell. And when I picture walking into the gates of heaven, I think of the Savior waiting for me and having his arms just, you know, running towards you with the biggest warm hug ready to accept me in. And I think of the moments that I ever doubted and all the moments that I ever thought I didn't know what this would be like and if it was going to be enough. Everything that I'd gone through was to get here. Okay, what's your name? My name is Ron Corral. Ron, where are you from? I am from Novato, California. What's one of the first things you want to do? I'm going to have to fall on my face and just worship the Lord and praise Him and, and sing and sing and sing sing my heart out to Him. What's your name? Dana. Dana, where are you from? I'm from Orange County. Oh, I want to walk those streets of gold. I want to see the pearly gates. The Christmas season offers a time for reflection and for hope. Most people believe in a creator and an afterlife. However, some don't, and there's a lot of disagreement on just what the future holds when this life is over. Merry Christmas!